Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, and welcome to episode 220 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We're here today with Will Jawando, director of the Summer Real Interesting Summer Experience, RISE, as of 2017 former Democratic candidate for the United States Congress in Maryland's 8th Congre- Congressional District, and a former candidate for delegate in District 20, representing Silver Spring and Tacoma Park, Maryland, and Montgomery County, formerly of counsel to the Rabin Group, and former director of corporate and government affairs at Discovery Communications. Will is also a former director of congressional relations at the Democratic National Convention in North Carolina, and a former deputy director of strategic partnerships at the United States Department of Education. He's a former associate director for the Office of Public Engagement in the Barack Obama White House, and a former Hill staffer for Senator Brown, Obama, and House Representative Pelosi. Will, thank you so much for coming to joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. That was a, a long recitation. There you <laughs> thank go. Thank you very much. Well. <laughs> well, you've done a lot, yeah, Will. I'm doing well. So let's get you talking about uh, why you're on the show here. The first question I'd like to pose to you, and you can pull from any of that experience yeah. or anything else, is what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? Great question. Uh, really, my journey of public interest has been a long one. Uh, that's why I went to law school. As you know, Jordan, grew up here in Montgomery County, uh, son of a Nigerian immigrant, mom from Kansas, very low income. And uh, I saw early on that education was going to be the thing that got me where I needed to go. And once I got scholarships and did well, I wanted to make sure that other people had opportunity. And so I've been spending much of my career in the education workforce space, uh, as you read off on on Capitol Hill, uh, in the Obama White House, at the Department of Education, and even now running uh, a summer youth career experience program here for Montgomery County high school students. The first of its kind. We're really excited to have it. This is the first summer for Summer Rise. Um, so I really think lifelong journey has been to try to improve this community, improve the country, and, and really serve the pu- public interest. Tell me a little bit about Summer Rise. What is it? How does it get started? So it was a Great collaboration and idea that uh, between the school system and WorkSource Montgomery, which is the uh, entity that does the uh, helps dislocated workers and helps with workforce development and improve the talent pipeline here in Montgomery County, which is as you know is a very important. Uh, to and the partnership was to provide a career development experience, a job shadowing experience to high school juniors and seniors, uh, really because we need to get them thinking about what they want to do in careers that are available here and for them in the future earlier on. And so uh, for a county as big as we are, for a school system as big as we are, 150,000, we need to be getting our kids thinking early about what they want to work on. So this will be the first year. It will be a three-week career development experience for high school rising seniors and juniors uh, where they're going to learn about different industries, biotech, cybersecurity, education, government, and shadow uh, working professionals, learn about their industry, uh, and do some professionalism trainings that we're hosting, too. So we're excited about it. Hope it grows over the years, but this will be the first summer. It's open to all 25 high schools. But just during the summer. It's an all-year position. So what would you do the rest of the year? No, this is just a summer program. Oh, so this it. is a summer we, this is a summer, so while kids are out of school, yeah. this is a summer program, a okay. summer career development program. So, like, next fall you wouldn't be working on this? No, there, but there are other programs. They have internship coordinators at the high schools. Uh, I know the superintendent wants to expand those programs so that all more kids get into them. But this will be complimentary for those critical summer months. So you've done corporate and government affairs, a lot of some lobbying, um, public engagement, 
uh, and of course you mentioned your interest in uh, educational policy. So I guess, would you say that you really began getting interested in educational policy on Capitol Hill? Oh, no, way before that. Like I said, I grew up in Long Branch, Silver Spring, went to MCPS public schools, was fortunate to get a scholarship to a private high school and then to college. I really saw educational disparities early on. And okay. so I, that's what got me into it because I had, a, you know, and you've heard me say this, I had a friend of mine uh, who unfortunately was shot and killed when I was in high school. In Silver Spring. In Silver Spring. and Was that just bad luck? Well, you know, didn't have the same opportunity. Got involved with the wrong things, didn't necessarily have teachers that believed in them didn't have a scholarship like I did and went down a different path. And I really saw that how my educational opportunity put me on a different track. Mm -hmm. And so that's really where I got interested in it. You don't know it at that moment you're going to dedicate your life to educational policy, but that's ended up being where I spent a lot of my work on workforce and education, realizing that if you get that right, mm -hmm. you can solve a lot of the other issues. Speak to me about educational disparities. What are they? Who do they affect? Uh, well, it affects our whole country, believe it or not, but primarily you hear the achievement gap mm -hmm. uh, that refers to you know African American Latino other students low-income students student mm -hmm. with disabilities mm -hmm. students that uh, don't necessarily have the same resource or access to resources uh, where uh, working professionals teachers some some of them don't necessarily think these students can achieve at the same levels um, and so it's developed this persistent gap uh, mm -hmm. that we can see as early as uh, you know when kids are five years old when they start school if the kids that have had a pre-K education, or kids that haven't, you'll have a over a, Did you experience a 30, 30 million word gap between those two. Uh, I was fortunate that my mom, even though we were low income, mm -hmm. she put all her money and, and sacrificed a lot of things to getting me into early education settings. And so when I hit kindergarten, I was on pe pace with other students. Okay. Um, but so you have a lot of kids that aren't. Many individuals of African American or Latino extraction would not be at that same level at kindergarten. Well, this data shows that they aren't. I mean, and it's not just African-American, you know, it's, it's really tracks income as well, uh, lower socioeconomic status. But the numbers show us that we know when kids start kindergarten, some start with three million more words than the kids that didn't have, were sitting in front of a TV. Three million words? Yeah, additional words. How many words. words does one person even know? I thought it was closer to 60,000 per person. No, 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 you, what, that you've heard. You might not know them, but oh. that you've been exposed to. Oh, over, cumulatively. Yeah, yeah cumulatively. Uh, not not individual words. Is this yeah. more of a wealth gap than a race gap? Uh, you know, Do poor the, white kids fare better than wealthy Latino kids? It depends on where in the country. Right but, here in Silver Spring, Maryland. Yeah, no, actually it doesn't because there aren't a lot of poor white kids here in Silver Spring, Maryland. They just aren't. I mean, the data shows us that most of the low-income people here are Latino or African-American or immigrant families. So it has more to do with access to resources than with... No, I, well, it depends because you, there, if, if it was just that, you also have a very high push-out rate here in Montgomery County, which means that students of color are suspended or expelled at much higher rates than their white or Asian counterparts. And why and, is that? Uh, well, you, a lot of reasons. Implicit bias, uh, you know, uh, not understanding the population or the cultural background of the students you're teaching. Um, is there something you know, that our listeners, if any of our listeners are teachers right now, and they have some uh, African-American and Latino students in their classroom. Is there something they should be keeping in mind when they're teaching those students? Well, I think all students, all teachers should be keeping in mind that we want to give all of our students opportunity to succeed, no matter where they come from, what they look like, um, and that they have to recognize that you're, we are, by nature, more comfortable with things that we know. And when you don't know about a person's culture or background or language, or you know that you need to step out of yourself and make sure that you're being 
equal and equitable towards those students and giving them what they need. They might need something different than another student. Like what? Uh, extra well, encouragement. Yeah. Extra encouragement. Okay. Uh, if, if someone's coming to school hungry or doesn't speak the language, maybe they're frustrated and acting out because they're hungry or, don't, or, or, or aren't understanding what's happening mm-hmm. as opposed to they're a bad kid and let's push them out of the classroom. So it just it's a it's a and there's training about this and the super the new superintendent is, is aware of these stats and is working on it, um, but it's a culture shift it's a change, um, and it's something that just you have to be aware of your own biases so you can do, be the best teachers for these students. I'm not sure if this is a fair question, so I'll ask it. And but uh, as a black boy in Montgomery County Public Schools in Silver Spring, were there any challenges? Did you feel the impact of an achievement gap on yourself? Well, there's challenges in the sense that, again, I was very fortunate to also attend private schools on scholarship, but, uh, and even there it's not perfect, there's an expectation gap. And so I knew that some teachers didn't think I could do certain things, and I didn't know why necessarily they thought that, but I, you could feel that there were different expectations for you than there were for someone else. Like, so there may be instances of public school teachers expecting white kids to do better and to outperform the black and the Latino kids. And it, yes, and it might not even be conscious. I mean, we know from research that there's unconscious bias that we just think that certain... So teachers don't even know they're doing this. In some cases. Some do, but I would say most don't. I think it's it, most of it is unconscious bias. So how do you combat something you're not even aware that you're doing? Uh, it's a training issue. Uh, it's challenging your own preconceived notions and biases that we all have. Um, and it's it's like I said, it's a culture shift in the school system. Um, you know, it was data that showed that uh, doctors, it happens in the medical field, that doctors think, there were studies that doctors think that black people can take pain more than white or other people. And so that's why we've seen a less of an academic epidemic in the prescription opioid drug prescription because a lot of black people aren't on prescription drugs because they're not prescribed it for pain because <laughs> doctors have an implicit bias think that you're, you're big black and you can handle the pain. Really? I mean, this, this, this is documented. So it's just that's how deep it goes. And Is America culturally a racist place? Well, we go back to our original sin. I mean, we brought people over here to build the country for free and, mm-hmm. and subjugated the ones that were already here and eradicated them. So, of course. So we're still struggling with that. Yeah, of course. I mean, we, we never we have had truth and reconciliation. So let's, uh, well, actually, let, on that topic, should we have truth and reconciliation? I think we have to. And I what mean, would that even look like? You can argue about what it looks like, but I think, you know, South Africa gave us a model, right? You could say it worked or it didn't, but it allowed people to really uh, talk about and come to grips. And then and also put in context what the, our history means today. I think so many people want to say we had the civil rights movement, we had Dr. King, and just brush everything under the rug and say we're fine. And that, and we just see that that's not the case. I mean, you can look at the um, the horrible killing of this young man the other day at the University of Maryland, the young man who's about to graduate from Bowie State uh, and was a young white kid from Mary University of Maryland student came up to him and said, why are you hanging out here? And had said some racist things and stabbed him and he's dead. Um, and so we still have some deep challenges. Um, and I think part of it is because we haven't addressed them in an open setting and allow people to really talk about it in a, in a, in a way where they're not judged. So we need our Truth and Reconciliation Council without judgment. Interesting. Um, I'd like to transition away from a topic yeah, I didn't of, think we were going there. <laughs> of race and education. Sure. I'd like to talk about the two political campaigns that you sat on. Um, so uh, quickly, why did you run 
for delegate? And then why turn right around and run for Congress right after that? Well, yeah, I ran for delegate like I think you did probably because you wanted to improve your community. Um, and there was an opening. I think when I ran for delegate in 2014, two of the three seats were open. Uh, Tom Hucker and uh, Heather Missouri were running for different offices. And for background for our listeners, Hucker, who was a delegate, is now a council member, yeah. and Mazir, who was a delegate, ran for governor and lost. Yeah. And so it's, it's a, as all things with politics, it's a combination of timing and luck and uh, passion and, and a whole bunch of dynamics. And so I, I was a very fortunate to run in my home district where I grew up, and, and we came very close. We lost by less than 1%, a couple, you know, about 100 votes and some change. Uh, in that delegate race, and I uh, was proud of the coalition we put together and what we built. And I didn't expect to run uh, again two years later for Congress, uh, but I did so because, uh, as you know, this congressional seat doesn't open up often. Uh, mm-hmm. It's one of these things that kind of happens once in a generation. You know, uh, Congressman, now Senator Van Hollen, had been in it for 15 years. Prior to him, Connie Morella had been in it for about 20. So there is uh, a generational change that happened, and I think we needed some someone in Congress that understood the changing demographics and the changing uh, county uh, and also understood Congress. And so that's why I ran, but I think Congressman Raskin is doing a great job. So. Now for D20, there is one person who was just appointed to the, to the delegation, yeah. not put there by the voters. The voters already have approved you. Uh, quite substantially last time. You think you're going to run on your own coattails and uh, try to follow up with those same voters and try to get the extra 100 votes so you're in office as delegate in 20 next year? I'm looking at a number of races. I'm looking at the county council. I'm looking at uh, the delegate race. But, I, you know, my thing with all of this stuff is I want to find ways to serve. I'm serving now, creating this uh, summer youth employment program. It doesn't matter so much how you serve except that you do serve. Yeah, and I think that's... It's it's a tactic, right? We you know government office, business, philanthropy. We all work together to try to improve our community. And so the particular office or the particular role that's more of a function of what's the right fit, what issues do you care about the most, what do you want to work on? And I think in the era of Trump, mm-hmm. the local issues, the local races are so much more important. And what do you say to somebody who says, "Well, you know, why is why is he running for all these different offices? You know, why doesn't he? Is there one issue that he wants to just?" Focus on what do you say to someone who says something? Well, I'd say I've been focusing on these issues. You know, I'm co-chair of the African-American Student Achievement Action Group. Uh, I led an effort to expand immersion programs here in the county. I'm working on a workforce program. So I have a nonprofit that, as you know, that does civic engagement. Our voices matter. So in the middle of all this, I still work on a ton of stuff because you don't have to be elected to be an advocate and work on things, right? So let's just move on to that. We are coming to the end of this podcast episode. So a final two-part question. Why are you so interested in public service, advancing the public interest? What's your motivation? Why have you been giving of yourself in education, in the White House, in the U.S. Congress, as an attorney and doing government affairs, as a candidate for which you're not remunerated? And then what will be your legacy after you have a whole lifetime, a whole career of public service? What will be the great effect? What will be the impact of your dedication to advancing the public interest? Yeah, great question. And I would hope all of us are seeking impact. I mean, that's why I got into it. I mean, the, the thrill of public interest to me is that when you get good public policy, you can literally help millions of people. And I, and on the converse, when you get it wrong, you can it can have deathly consequences. If we re- get rid of health care, 23 million people lose it. Uh, if we go to war, people die. Um, if we don't have good schools, people don't get opportunity, and they, they might get into caught up in the wrong thing and die like my friend. So there are literally life and death consequences 
based on the policies we make. And we know that the more people you have involved, the more diverse group of people you have involved in making those policies, you're going to get better outcomes. So all of us have a role to play. I'll continue to play it in many forms and fashions, and as you, as will you, I'm sure. And that has been Will Jawando, director of the Summer Real Interesting Summer Experience, former Democratic candidate for Congress and the House of Delegates, an attorney, government affairs professional, formerly working in the White House, U.S. Department of Education, and the U.S. Congress and, and Senate, who speaks about... Uh, both uh, making making others' dreams more likely to succeed. He speaks about removing institutional barriers facing individuals of color with an expectation gap. He doesn't assign judgment or blame to individuals who are perpetuating uh, these difficulties, these institutional uh, obstacles for individuals of color, but he... Uh, seeks to have pragmatic solutions, uh, raising awareness of what these expectation gaps might be. He seeks to advance the public interest by creating more opportunities, again, raising awareness among high school students about how they may, in the future, develop their careers through their education by exposing them to internships uh, in the summer. So, And by running for office, multiple offices, he seeks to continue trying to advance the public interest in multiple different veins. And, and in that spirit, uh, Will seeks to advance the public interest. So Will, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thank you for doing this. All right. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com and on iTunes. Leave a review of this podcast on iTunes and listen on Stitcher, SoundCloud, CastBox, Blueberry, Player FM, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Should you wish to comment on this episode, you're welcome to leave a voicemail at 240-630-0380. And the first three minutes of that voicemail may be played in future episodes of Public Interest Podcast. Should you wish to support the podcast, you're welcome to leave a contribution in an amount that you feel comfortable with at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.